I'm going to um, give a sermon tonight called God of the Comeback. Um, it's mostly, it's not my story really at all. Um, it's a story that I'm going to tell from um, a pastor in Arizona. He's a pastor of Church for the Nations. I called it the Potter's House. It's Church for the Nations. It's Michael Maiden. And he spoke at Bethel, and it was such, made such an impression on me that I wanted to kind of just share his message and how it tied in a little bit with me and maybe with you guys too. Um, because like Bob and I talk about, and Chris, so many times when you do a message, it's really just something that God's been stirring in your own heart, and you feel compelled to share it to other people. And so I want to just tell you about it. I, I think I told some of you when I was at Bethel, when was it, last last weekend? Um, or week and a half ago. I forgot how conferences go. I, went, I got there at 3.30 to sign up, and they, that sanctuary probably sits... 2,000 people, 2,000 people or whatever. And it was going to be full for the conference. So I got there at 3.30, and I realized that the doors open at 5.30 to get your seat. And if you're going to get a seat, you had to stay there and stand in line from 3.30 to 5.30 just to get in the doors so you could find your seat and put your little – and then you had – and then the conference started at 6.30. So you were in the sanctuary for an hour before it even started. But I want to tell you something. When I got to the church and I – I signed in, and I stood in line for an hour. You know, you just have to stand there. It doesn't even move. You stand there for an hour, and then finally you get to go in. And the moment that I walked into that sanctuary, I felt the presence of God so strong on me. I almost started just weeping right then and there. And then they opened up with this song, The Goodness of God. That was the very first song that they started with um, for the conference. And I was just undone. I was just, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. It was just such an incredible presence of God that they have, cultivated in their church they've gone after it and they've cultivated it and um it was it was incredible and so this story um and the, again the other reasons one of the reasons i like going to that um church for the conference is because they are the innovators they are the they are people that are pushing us to the new thing that god is doing just like there are a lot of um culture changers and influencers out on the west coast there's Microsoft and Google and Apple and everybody in Silicon Valley, they are influencing our culture. They are bringing technology to us and influencing where our culture is going, but in the same way so is Bethel. They have, they have cultivated a culture that is absolutely on the cutting edge of what God is doing in our world. And I love to see it, and I love to experience it, maybe bring a little bit of that motivation, enthusiasm home. And so that's kind of just my report on, on my conference. And so I want to talk about this, man, this pastor called um, Michael Maiden. He's a pastor, like I said, a church called um, Church of the Nations. He's in Phoenix, Arizona. And his catchphrase is, it's not over till God makes it good, because he has a real comeback story. When he was 27 years old, he and his wife started a church called the Eagle's Nest. And it quickly grew to kind of a mega church of more than 2,000 people or so. And um, an affluent businessman came into the church and made friends with uh, Michael Maiden and um, began to bless the church financially and help them make financial decisions and do all these things that the pastor thought was really, really good. And come to find out down the road, he was actually perpetrating a Ponzi scheme with people outside the church and people inside the church. In fact, one of the um, church parishioners had um, invested $1 million 
into his Ponzi scheme. And I believe the church had somehow, he was the unofficial church treasurer, and in some way, I don't know if they invested or whatever, but they lost $12 million to him. And it came out that he embezzled $20 million between the church and the people of the church. He embezzled $20 million. And he was um, caught, and he was... Um, con- he was prosecuted and convicted and went to jail. But in the meantime, the city of that he was in couldn't believe that the pastor was not complicit with this because so many of the people that were um, deceived were part of the church, the Ponzi scheme. And so not only was this man under federal investigation, the pastor found himself under pa- um, federal investigation for a year. He had to go in. He, they called him in, and he um, sat down. And he went in naively. They're like, we want to meet with you. You know, this is the Arizona Secretary General, whoever it is. And so, he, yeah, attorney, whoever, yeah, attorney general. So he walks in just thinking, well, I'm innocent. I can just bring myself. I don't need anything else. And he comes in, and there's 12 people sitting at the table. It's the FBI, the attorney general, you know, all these different investigative um, organizations people are there and they start grilling him like do you know this man what did you know about it? how come this happened how blah 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 and at the end of it one really <laughs> helpful person comes up and says you need to have a lawyer with you like you're this is serious business you can't come in by yourself you shouldn't be answering these questions by yourself you need to go get yourself a lawyer and that's when it really hit him that it was possible they were coming after him and so he had to go get himself a criminal defense lawyer can you imagine a pastor a criminal defense lawyer and so um, in the course of a couple of months, the, um, the paper of that city, I don't think it was Phoenix, I think it might have been, I'm not sure what city, but it was a big city in Arizona. They had the church um, splashed on the front pages 10 times in the next couple of months. Just these, these um, breaking news kind of um, stories, and a lot of them were lies. Like, for example, the woman who, um, in, who um, invested a million dollars into the Ponzi scheme, her lawyer called up him and said, we need X, Y, and Z from you, and we need you to say this and that, and if you don't, we're going to expose you to the press. Well, he didn't agree to it because what they were asking was a lie, and consequently, they went to the press, and they printed a story in the paper that said he had urged her to, in, to invest this money with the con man. And it was a lie. He had told her not to do it. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, blah, blah, blah. But they absolutely smeared his name in the paper. At one time, they had um, 15 um, attorneys representing them, the church, in various lawsuits. And some of them were um, class action lawsuits. They weren't just individuals like one-on-one. They were you know, a class of people were actually suing the church and him personally during this time. Um, the other thing was his home was a parsonage, and they had made an agreement that, that he thought had gone through that this parsonage would be transferred to him and would be his personal property because he found the home, and he was paying the mortgage on the home. He found it for $300,000. It was a foreclosure. And um, he was the one making the payments on it, but title was held by the church because it was a parsonage at that time. And they had made an agreement with somebody that they were going to transfer title over to him and his wife because they were the one making the payments. 
And they were making double payments for seven years. They got in the mortgage down to like $100,000, something like this. So when the scandal broke, the home was not actually transferred into his name and still remained the property of the church. So when the scandal broke, the home was attached to all the different lawsuits and all the financial problems of the church. And consequently, they lost their family home. They had thought they had owned for seven years. They bought it for 300000 and at the time that they lost it, it was worth $1.3 million. And he had, you know, it was kind of the dream home of his wife. She had prayed over what kind of house she wanted, and they, you know, he believed that God had given this house to him. It was going to be a financial blessing to them. It was going to be part of their retirement because it had, it had you know, increased so much. And when the um, scandal broke, because it was not in their name, it was not protected, they lost their home. So that year, they were homeless. They, the ch- they went personally bankrupt. And he and his family spent Christmas in a hotel room. Somebody, one of the people from the um, congregation, paid for them to stay a month in a hotel because they lost their house. And that was Christmas that year for him and his family. The... Um, The insurance companies, they had two insurance policies that were supposed to cover any lawsuits or, you know, if you had legal problems. And the insurance companies came to them and said, no, we're not going to cover this. We're going to actually, like, cancel your policy, and we're not going to follow through on anything that we said we're going to do. And so consequently, the church itself went bankrupt because they could no longer sustain all these lawsuits coming against the church for this Ponzi scheme. In <laughs> between the year 1995 and 2002, they moved their church 22 times in 20 different locations because they lost their church building. And so they're moving around 22 times from the year 1995 to the year 2002. His mega church went from several thousand people to 150 people. That's what it was at the very end. In the meantime, one of his sons, who was a star athlete and a prominent student, began to medicate himself with drugs and left the home. When he was 18 years old, he was out on the streets, living on the streets, was not living in his family home, and he had no idea where his son was at all. He was, Michael, the pastor, suffered a two-year depression, clinical depression. He was depressed for two years. At that time, he went back and got his um, degree. He has a master's degree or doctorate degree in in psychology. (laughs) And as he was taking all his classes, he realized, oh, I have all the um, marks of clinical depression, and I've been that way for two years. He medicated himself. He was not a person to medicate with drugs or alcohol. He medicated himself with food. And he grew to be over 300 pounds during this time because that's all he could do to medicate what was going on. And and he even says, if you read his book, the book is called God of the Comeback. That's the, um, are you proud of my graphic that I made up, you guys? Isn't that good? Um, The book is called God of the Comeback, and it's, you can buy it on Amazon, and I would urge you to buy it. It's really, really good. And um, he talks about how, you know, when you're 27 years old, and you start a church, and it grows to thousands by the time you're 37. This is when it kind of happened when he was 37. That's a big ego boost. 
that's a lot of performance that is being um, validated in your life. You're living for the approval of other people because you've seen the success after success after success. And he talks about how um, God had to really break him of that, that he had to absolutely be broken of a success mentality as part of his identity because if he lived for the approval of, of people, he was doomed because his church went down to 150 people. He said he was both angry at God and man for what had happened to him, and at 37, he thought his life was over. One of his um, employees, I think it was an assistant pastor or something like that, um, seek, had secret meetings and called up people secretly and started a, another church um, down the street from his, and it grew to 2,000 people like overnight, like it just doubled and doubled and doubled. There's all the success on it. And he would drive his kids to, um, I guess their school, I don't know if it was a public or private school, and he'd drive his kids' kids to school, and he'd look at that, you know, he, you know how it is sometimes when you don't, you physically don't want to look at something. Like there might be a person or something in front of you, and you not only not want to talk to them or you want to give them the silent treatment, but you also just turn your head away and pretend they don't exist. Have you ever done that? That's what he did. He said, I would physically turn my head away from that church whenever, because I, I had to drive past it to drop my kids off to school. And I would physically turn my head away because I could not stand to look at that church and what was going on over there. And so God said to him, and this is, where, this is what hit me. He said, God told him he had to forgive everyone that had done him wrong and said, Michael, if you forgive people that hurt you, I'll make you forget the pain they caused you. And he says, so I forgave myself back to life, which is really, really interesting. It's an interesting kind of statement. I'll go into that a little bit later. So 16 years ago, he walked his church through bankruptcy, lost the building, was going from building to building to building to building, down to 150 people when God started to have him dream again, and he began to have dreams. He, wa he worked through the, the forgiveness. He, he, did the, he did the work that God asked him to do, and he began to dream again. And he says he, he um, rented an auditorium. It was as big as the one at Bethel, which, again, seats like 1,000 or 2,000 people, right? He rented an auditorium and invited people to come, and he says the first day, 83 people showed up. And he said there was like two there and two there and two there. They're all scattered throughout the auditorium, you know. And he got up and he preached a sermon of prophetic destiny over the church and over himself. He said, this is going to be a church of 10, 10, and 10. We're going to have 10,000 people at 10 campuses in 10 years. He preached that to 83 people because that's the dream that God had put in his heart. And he had begun to believe God again. And he had done the work that God had called him to do and God was calling him to a comeback. So 16 years ago, he preached to a group of 83 people about what was going to happen. And it's funny because um, one, of the, one of the pastors in, in the church that he had had prior to the um, scandal, breaking loose, was, was um, publicly coming against him, preaching against him, was at a, was at a church and, and would say to his parishioners during the, 
during Sunday service, he'd say, we're not like that church over there. We're not like, it was called Eagle's Nest. We're not like Eagle's Nest over there. We're different. And every week he'd see people come from that church to check his church out. And his church would grow because of the defamation of that pastor, right? Isn't that kind of funny? So here's the, here's the interesting thing. After his scandal and the, the, the um, year, oh, I forgot to tell you this. After a year-long investigation by the feds, essentially, to see if he had colluded with this Ponzi scheme guy, they said to him, we know you're innocent, but you were a really stupid man for trusting that guy. You were very foolish. So he didn't have really good things to say about him. Um, and so here's what's so funny. After he preaches to this auditorium of 83 people, and he preaches the dream that God has put in his heart, his, the, the church starts to grow. It, they now have nine campuses, just so you know. But what happens is the church that was, the, the congregation that was in the church that was defaming him began to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And just a little while ago, a couple years ago, they voted to merge with, it's called Church of the Nations now, his church. And the campus of the pastor that was defaming him now belongs to him. Completely debt-free, 13 acres, 135,000 square feet, 2,400-person auditorium that belonged to the church that was defaming him now is their property, is their church's property. Now that's a comeback right there. That's the Lord on your side. Right? <laughs> right? This is, I think this is funny. You guys know where Fuller Theological Seminary is out in California? They actually did a study on his church, the scandal, and the comeback. And they came to him and said, we want to interview you because we've never seen this happen ever before. We study churches that have scandals and whatever happens, but nobody has ever come back from a scandal as big as yours. No one has ever done it. So we want to know what's going on. How did that happen? Whatever. And of course he said, well, it's not me. It's the Lord. They're like, oh, we know it's not you. It has to be the Lord because this is so outrageous that this comeback actually occurred. And um, I just thought that was kind of funny. So a couple of things that I took away from this are keys to the comeback. I don't know about you, but I bet most of us have experienced some kind of setback in our life or failure or we just don't feel good enough or we don't know if the Lord is really going to use us or if, if we have a legit destiny. Maybe we're just one of those mediocre, average people that coast through life and never make a difference. I don't know about you. I've experienced setback. I've experienced bitter, bitter setback. Things that happened in my life I thought would never happen. <laughs> One of the keys to the comeback that God taught him is forgiveness. He says forgiveness isn't just a discipline. It's actually a spiritual force in your life. The, in the Greek, it means to let go. And when you allow forgiveness into your life, it's a force and a presence of God. And it's not optional. It's not optional for our restoration. You know, when, he, when God said, I want you to forgive that person that started that church over there, he's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. That's not my emotional inclination to do. And he got this picture of forgiveness being faith, being um, the head of a train, sort of the engine of a train, and um, 
your emotions being at the very end of a train. And faith pulls your emotions forward. And his point is that when you begin to bless people through the engine of faith, whether you feel like it or not, it will pull your emotions along with you. And he said once he began to forgive people, once he began to say, you know, I'm going to bless them, I, I don't feel like blessing them, I don't want to bless them, but I'm going to bless them, pretty soon that unlocked in him forgiveness and healing, and God removed the hurt. In fact, when he was, um, he was at court, they were going through the bankruptcy process, and he had to go testify in court, and he walked into court, and there was a woman sitting in the courtroom, and she was just bawling and crying, and her head down was on the, her head was on the, um, table in front of her and you know mascara running down her eyes and and um he goes over to her and she's she's the woman who invested one million dollars into the ponzi scheme and then smeared his name in the um papers and she said can you ever forgive me can you ever forgive me i just can't believe i did that can you ever forgive me for that and he just said to you i already have i've already forgiven you and he was able to release such healing to her because he had already walked through the forgiveness process. He'd already received healing himself. He was able to go to that woman and release what she needed to be free. And I thought that was really powerful. And the problem is, <laughs> that's what God's been talking to me about. You know, last uh, week in our Tuesday night group, what did Jimmy Evans talk about? He said, you want to get rid of your emotional baggage? You've got to forgive. And it's not, it's not optional. In fact, not only do you have to forgive, you have to actually bless the person who wronged you. Yeah, I don't really want to do that. Can I tell you that straight up? I don't want to do that. Okay, well, that was, the, that was you know, here we have Michael Maiden say we've got to forgive. Then we have Jimmy Evans. And then, of course, the next day, we, we, you know, did that in our marriage group. The next day, I open up my Facebook, and there is a post from Jen Hatmaker from three years ago. And it's called the, um, what did she call it? How to get out of prison. How to get out of prison. And guess what it's all about? Forgiveness, right? I want to go back. Jimmy Evans said, and I thought this was so good. He said, unforgiveness is bitterness with a justice spirit that won't move forward, that won't go forward. So when you're, when you're unforgiving, you harbor bitterness with a um, justice spirit that won't go for it. And that really rang true to me because part of my not desiring to forgive is to somehow um, placate my own sense of justice, right? To somehow at least not let go of it, I would say. Because there's something about blessing somebody where it feels like you're releasing any kind of consequence over them, which you actually are, right? But you don't want to do it. Like, I don't want to do it. And here, I'm just going to be really super honest with you and tell you what I struggle with. You know, you guys, a lot of you know my story. My, um, my first husband cheated on me. He was living a double life for three years and, you know, served me divorce papers at church and um, said, I want a divorce and I want it right now, you know. And that was super painful. That was personal betrayal, right? Well, not only that, you know, he was having an affair. So his affair partner was all embroiled up in that and and obviously as all affair partners do really um you know egging on the divorce you know how do how do you you need to leave her so that we can be together etc cetera, etc cetera. 
that's the person I'm having a hard time with, you guys. I can pray for my ex-husband because part of praying for him, it's kind of selfish. Like, if you get healed, you'd be better to my kids, right? I mean, that's a little bit selfish, and I can pray for his blessing. There's really no advantage for me to pray for his, I'll call her name Jenny, his affair partner. Yeah, right? Jenny. Um, I, because there's no, you know, that doesn't come back to me, probably, I mean, it's not like him who has an effect on my kids. They're not together anymore, even. So even them not being together anymore, praying for her doesn't benefit me much at all, except to say that God's called me to do it now. Like, I've seen this three times this week. Oh, I think maybe he's saying something. Like, you know, when you see it that many times, you prob- there's probably a message in there God's trying to tell you. So today, as I was working on this message, I sat in my chair and I said, oh, Lord, I've got to do what you've called me to do. And I prayed blessings over her, and I prayed blessings over her finance and blessings over her relationship with her kids and, you know, whatever I could think of. And my emotions were not there. My emotions were not. That was an act of obedience on my part. My emotions were not there. But I'm going to believe God that if I want to be part of the comeback that he has, that's a key component to it, is walking in obedience to what he tells you to do. And I'm going to believe that that's going to bring me healing in this area. And so I encourage you to believe that too. I encourage you. And, you know, to be clear, forgiving somebody obviously doesn't mean they're relationally restored 100%. There's still the work that has to go through. But there is a component to forgiveness that where it is something we purpose to do whether we feel like it or not. And I have not felt like that, at least for her. I have not felt like that. I went to celebrate recovery so I could forgive my husband, my ex-husband, and get out of the hatred camp into the something else camp for him. But I have not been able to move her out of the hatred camp. You know what I'm saying? And, and this is where the Lord wants me to go. And that is a key to come back. Because being offended has two possible outcomes. Either it's a spiritual trap and we stay offended, and we don't forgive, and we're robbed of our influence, or it's an opportunity. There is something in the destiny of God's purpose for us to come become a reality. It's a promotion if we pass the test, and that's what I've chosen to believe. This is a promotion that I have a choice to walk forward in or stay trapped behind. I can either say, okay, God, I go forward with you in promotion, or I'll stay back here not going forward in bitterness, in a spirit of justice. The other part that is um, important about forgiveness is we have to forgive ourselves. You know, there's, it's one thing to forgive other people when they've wronged us. And, and to be clear, it's, I feel like it's easier to forgive people when they are repentant. When they come to you and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I'm like, sure, no problem. It's real hard to forgive people who aren't repentant. That's the big, big test for me, is to somehow, and forgiveness apparently has to do with blessing. We don't get to say, I forgive you. We also have to for- bless people. The scripture says, bless those who curse you. And that's the active part of forgiveness, is speaking blessing over people, even when they don't repent. And here's the deal, you guys. We have to forgive ourselves. There are things we've done in our past, maybe we've contributed to our setback or whatever, but like Bob was preaching about last week, we let those go, and we don't have regerts anymore, right? 
we let those go, we accept the forgiveness of Jesus, and we walk away from it. Otherwise, Peter could have not done what he did. Peter betrayed Jesus three times, yet he's the foundation. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you. He could not have done that if all he did was remember how he betrayed Jesus. He had to get a place of forgiving himself and leaving it behind. And that's a key for our own forgiveness is how do we leave it behind? The second thing is we've got to cultivate hope, visions, and dreams. God is the God of hope, and the gospel is infused with hope. And mature Christians, frankly, should not be negative Christians. If we see a Christian who is always walking in negativity, I'm going to tell you right now, they're not mature. They're a baby Christian. Mature Christians grab hold of hope and know that hope is a central theme in the in the Bible, in the gospel, and they cultivate it in their life. They cultivate dreams and they cultivate vision in their life because it's central to what God wants to do with us. This is what he says in Acts 2, 17 through 18. This is what I will do in the last days. I will pour out my spirit on everybody and cause your sons and daughters to prophesy and your young men to see dreams, visions. And your old men will experience dreams from God. The Holy Spirit will come upon all my servants, men and women alike, they will prophesy. The work of the Spirit concerning our destiny is prophecy, visions, and dreams. You know, I told you how Michael Maiden's son was, um, he was wandering the streets at 18 as a drug addict. And his dad would go into his son's room and lay down on the empty bed where his son was supposed to be sleeping and cry and weep and mourn because his son was lost and he didn't know where he was. And the Lord said to him, stop mourning for your son. Start thanking me and talking to him as if he's already been delivered from drugs and restored to his calling and destiny. So he was like, get off the bed. I want you to stop mourning for what you see in the natural, and I want you to start calling forth the supernatural. I want you to start calling forth the destiny of your son, even though it's not yet happened. That's what I want you to start doing. So what he did and what he and his wife did, whenever they would see their son, out in the um, wherever, society, they wouldn't ever talk to him about what was going wrong in his life. They would only talk to him about where he was going and where God was calling him. He, they never, ever addressed that he was a drug addict, that he was on the streets. They began ministering to him in his destiny. A couple weeks, several weeks after God told him that, he got invited to a church. He went up to the altar, he got delivered completely from drugs and alcohol. To this day, he's returned to the church. He's a businessman. He was a youth leader in his dad's church. But the, the, the lesson there is, you guys, we don't need to look at the way things are. We need to look at the way things are going to be. We have to begin to be prophetic voices that call out people's destiny, whether we see them or not. Because our families need us to be those people in our lives. Our families have a destiny. Not just us, not just the people around us, but our families. God has a, this is Michael, God has a redemptive purpose for every family, city, and nation. In every family, God has unfinished business that he is passionately wanting and patiently waiting to fulfill. Many individuals and families live paralyzed in a perpetual sadness or discouragement over the failure and devastation of previous generations. 
No matter how dysfunctional a family or how oppressed a city or nation, God has embedded an eternal divine purpose for their existence. When we seek God about our families, cities, and nations, he will reveal the predestined, redemptive purpose for them. Kingdom success is always attached to the fulfilling of kingdom purpose. I'm, I bet you, I bet you every single person here has a family member that is not where they think they should be. That is maybe lost or prodigal or backslidden or horrible or horrible. I mean, can anyone relate to that? <laughs> our, our job is to be the prophetic voice that says, I'm not going to address where you are now. I'm going to say where you're supposed to be and where you're going to be. And that's what I was going to start practicing in my family. I've got, there's people in my family that I want to say, I'm going to start praying your destiny to you. I'm going to stop saying, oh, I wish you weren't like this. I'm going to say, I can't wait till you're like that. I can't wait till God gets a hold of you and you become the person that you've been predestined to be. The scripture says there are good works. He has created good works for us to walk in since the foundation of the earth. That means everyone has a predestined destiny. God has called them. And it's our job as prophetic voices to call that forth. Your job and my job in our families. Forget about the world right now. In our families. The other thing. The third thing, and I'll end with this, is God can restore with a suddenly. Do you guys know what a suddenly is? There's a um, literary device in the Bible called um, the sudden turnaround, sudden reversal. You'll see it in Esther, in Joseph, Hosea, where things are going real bad, and all of a sudden God steps in, and sovereignly there's a turnaround. There's a reversal. God is the God of sudden reversal and he's waiting to do a comeback in your life if you look at the um, life of Joseph you know how Joseph was um, given a, a coat of many colors by his father and his brothers were jealous because he had these dreams sold you know ripped the cloak from him sold him into slavery and he went into the pit the slavers sold him to Potiphar's house and the wife uh, became attracted to him wanted to have an affair with him. Joseph said, no, I'm not going to do that to my employer. She took the cloak off of him, and he got thrown into prison, all right? So he's in prison. He interprets some dreams for some um, of Pharaoh's employees. They get out of prison. They forget about him. He's still in prison. Well, all of a sudden, Pharaoh has a dream, and that no one can interpret it. And the employees are like, wait, we remember somebody who can interpret dreams. And he's, and he's pulled from the prison in a moment. And as he's going to see Pharaoh, this is so cool, you guys, as he's going to see Pharaoh, you, can't, you know, he had a beard, because in prison, obviously, you probably can't shave or anything. He had raggedy old clothes on, because in prison, he's going to have raggedy old clothes on. And as he's going to see Pharaoh, Pharaoh's um, entourage is like, you can't go see Pharaoh like that. You need to shave, and you need to change your clothes. So he's shaving the... the um, the story in the Bible, the, the movement in the Bible is that he had to shave on the run. It was such a fast turnaround that he didn't have time to, like, get himself fixed up in prison and do what he needed to do, and I'll be there, and, you know, tomorrow. Pharaoh wanted to see him right away. Pharaoh's like, I need some interpretation on this dream right away. Find me who this man is. So he had to change his clothes and shave his face as he was going to see Pharaoh on the run. That's the Lord of a sudden turnaround, of a sudden reversal. And I want you to see the, um, 
picture of this, you guys. He had to let go. He had to let go of the garment they had in prison and put the garment on to see the Pharaoh. And sometimes we have to let go of the garment of our past, the, the, um, the garment that, that he had, the um, striped robe, that's the, that represents betrayal. His family betrayed him. The, the robe that was stolen from him from Potiphar's wife, that's the, that represents accusation when we were accused. We have to let those robes go, and we have to be robed with our destiny to go forward. So we have to let go of the past if we're going to move forward into our destiny. If we're going to participate with our sudden turnaround, we got to shave, we got to change our clothes, and we got to get on the road because there's no time waiting in the past. Is that a good word or what? We partner with God to walk out of victimization, and we choose to be powerful people to pursue our destiny because you know what? God is rooting for our comeback. God is on board with our comeback, and we're going to partner with him and do what it takes. So I'm going to give this example. You know, after um, Michael Maiden had his church of several thousand people, um, God began to give him words and dreams about the governor. At that time, it was a woman. And they invited her to his congregation, and he got a lot of flack for that because some people didn't like her politics. But he invited her anyway because he felt that was what he was supposed to do. And he brought her up on stage, and he was giving her a bouquet of, of flowers. And um, he said, can I pray for you? Well, as soon as he began to pray, she said yes. As soon as he began to pray for her, he got a prophetic word for her, right? And he, and he began to say to her, um, God, you know, you had this brokenness that happened in your past, which is why you respond to things the way you do now. And it completely just touched her. And at the end of the service, she gave her heart to the Lord in the in the altar call, she gave her heart to the Lord. Here's this governor. And so over the next six years, he was able to go into her office, and whenever he would go meet her, she'd say to him, do you have a word for me? Do you have a word for me? Because that first prophetic word had actually unlocked her heart to who God is, and she was hungry for it, and she wanted it. And the last time that he went in to pray for her, he gave her a prophetic word, and he said, you're going to end your term early, um, let, me get the, let me get this right. You're going to end it early. D leave your office early and be in Washington, D.C. That was the end of it, and be in Washington, D.C. And that year, Obama was elected, and he asked her to leave her job two years early to be in his cabinet, and she knew it was from the Lord because she had gotten a word from it earlier from him. Isn't that cool? You know, he said... When I was there at the conference, he said, we don't have to agree with people's politics to bless them and give them prophetic words. That's a good word right there. So our job, you guys, we're going to mine the golden people. We're going to discover our own heavenly dreams. You know, and just like Joseph, the person who interprets the dream of the culture wins the influence of the culture, as we saw that with that lady right there. When Joseph was able to interpret the dream of Pharaoh, he became prime minister of the land. Think of the influence you have if you're prime minister of the land, because he's able to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. Michael Maiden was able to touch and give a prophetic word to this governor, and he had influence in her life because of that. So our goal is how do we bring prophetic influence, how do we use our prophetic gift to influence our family, 
and the world around us because we will begin to have influence in those areas. So I'm just going to wrap up with a prayer. And if you guys want to come up and get, a, um, get some prayer, that would be awesome. Me and Steve will be up here. And I just want you to remember this. No one is rooting for your comeback more than God. In the story of your life, don't stay stuck in the chapters dominated by loss and pain. Give God the chance to write a good ending to your story. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are God of the comeback. And I pray, Lord, that um, there's something in this message, Lord, that's going to touch somebody. They're either going to walk forward in forgiveness. They're going to dream again. They're going to believe that you can use them to bring restoration to their family. Whatever it is, Lord, I pray, God, that we will be active doers of the word, that we will not be hearers only, Lord, but you will actually propel us to maturity and we would move forward and be healed and be whole and not be stuck, Lord, that we would partner with you for our comeback and partner you for, with you for the dream that you planted in our hearts, God. In Jesus' name, amen.